like an advertisement, but NFJC does not accept any financial support for promotion. We are entirely funded by donations from our users. Arcana asked to advertise, and the members of Freely Filtered are airing this promotion without compensation because they believe in Arcana's mission. Hey, Joel Toff here. I'm here with uh, Dr. Jim Tumlin and Chris Larson. We're going to be talking once again about APOL1 and genotype testing. Jim, why don't you tell me a little bit about your practice? Yeah, so thanks. So my professorship is with Emory and uh, I run a large uh, clinical trials operation in North Atlanta called the Nefernet Clinical Trials Group. And, and so we work pretty closely with uh, companies that working and developing in the APOL1 sphere. And, and really what got me going with that, of course, was Chris and his uh, wonderful team in Arcana. What got me started to really be more aggressive about testing for APOL1 is uh, in Atlanta, we have, we have a lot of bad diabetics, but we have extraordinarily bad diabetics. Uh, some that have protein levels in excess of 10 grams. And so it's been our practice's policy to biopsy these people to be sure that this is something that's not an additional glomerulopathy on top of diabetes. And, and many of them are diabetics, but then Chris would point out some of these subtleties uh, on the biopsy that would point toward the possibility of, of an extraneous process. And of course, we now know that that's probably APOL1. And so we've been identifying these patients, genotyping them, going back to their families, looking for early signs of uh, disease in order to give a, a full story to the patient of what's going on in their particular family. Interesting, interesting. So so besides your proteinuric, your proteinuric diabetics, you know, who, who else are you uh, typically sending for genotype testing? If you look at the, the whole of the literature of APOL1, we don't really fully understand how it manifests itself. And, in, and I think it can be very broad. Uh, there can be manifestations that are, are limited to the renal architecture. And this is the young African-American male that comes in. He's got a systolic blood pressure of 270 over 140. Uh, they go into, uh, you know, secondary HUS syndrome and all kinds of nasty stuff. And, uh, and so we want to know those individuals and type them so that should their kidneys recover, moving forward and assuming that certain drugs under development uh, come to fruition and bear fruit, uh, that we have a therapy for them to prevent them from going to dialysis. Is it fair to say that today you're not changing management? Like, it, you know, I, I know we, I, I share your vision for the future and I think we have a sunny future, but, you know, for tomorrow, right? For, 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 the, for the next month, we're not going to have a specific therapy available. Sure. They may be able to be enrolled in a clinical trial. Is it, is it, Changing anything else you do, you know, that that lupus patient that is at APOL1 positive or uh, the patient with hypertension that does come back APOL1 positive, does that kind of shade how you approach that patient? Joel, that was just, you really asked a really timely question. So in the last two years, I've had now 11 patients with uh, lupus nephritis that had previous biopsies that were sort of classic genres, either three, fours or fives or combinations. And we treat them, we got them in remission, and lo and behold, they had a return of their proteinuria without a lot of extra renal manifestations and without a lot of hematuria. We re-biopsy them, and of these 11 patients, they were all lupus FSGS. Moreover, what they had was microcystic dilatations. They had uh, disappearing glomeruli, these subtle findings on biopsy of APOL1 disease. So we went back and typed them, and they were not dual allele positive they were uniformly single allele positive. Here's our idea. Lupus is a classic interferon-driven disease. So if you have a flare of your lupus 
and your interferon levels go on, is it sufficient to drive G2 production or some manifestation of the apoL protein that they now become what is a lupus-dependent APOL1-like FSGS? So we got some funding uh, through AstraZeneca, and we're doing an onafrolumab trial to see if we can directly treat these individuals. Interesting. That is that is interesting. Chris, tell us a little about, about the uh, Arcana uh, genotyping project. Sure. So Arcana Labs and Vertex Pharmaceuticals, we're working together. And basically, our goal is to increase awareness of APOL1-mediated kidney disease. And one of the main ways that we're going about it is uh, to decrease the barriers to testing. And specifically, uh, Vertex is sponsoring APOL1 genotyping uh, and genetic counseling for patients who have uh, two risk alleles at no cost, no cost to patients if they meet the eligibility criteria. So the test is a buckle swab. It can easily be performed in a clinician's office, it includes the shipping, and the results are provided within one day uh, of the receipt of the sample here. So we get the results uh, back quickly. Yeah, excellent. Jim, you ordered this test quite a bit, actually, and I looked back through out of curiosity, you have a very high percentage of positivity, actually. Uh, you know, I would say about, I think it was about 50% of the uh, APOL1 genotyping assays you order turn out to have dual risk alleles, you know, to be high risk. I'm curious, when you have a patient, when they have, uh, you know, FSGS, or maybe they just have hypertension and you test them and then it turns out to be APOL1. How does the patient respond to that information? What does it mean for a patient to learn that? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Um, you would be surprised. Many of the patient's families are like almost relieved is like a lack of a better term. They, yeah. they always suspected that there was something like this. And, and now that science and a lot of good work by Vertex and others is bringing this to bear, it, it, it makes them feel uh, like that it wasn't a consequence of any of their behaviors or their dietaries or something that they're doing wrong, that this truly is a genetic underpinning. And it motivates them to rouse up their families, the younger brother, brothers and sisters and cousins, and they all come in and we test them at once through your program. And this just helps me to define them for the future. Yeah, so getting that definitive diagnosis really helps them, uh, even emotionally and um, you know psychologically, to understand their disease. And also, I see what you're saying. I mean, almost like this wasn't my fault. You know, it wasn't because I didn't take my high blood, my, my hypertension medication, or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. So, so many times, you know, if, if the doctors don't have an explanation, what do we do? We blame the patient, right? You're eating too much salt or something along those lines. You know, mm. it, it's like the old joke that we always say, you know, pick your parents well. There is something behind this. And, and we can hopefully in the future, as you intimated, have a real therapy. Because what's going to happen? Here's what I think is going to happen. We're going to find that if this drag pathway works, uh, we'll start people very early and we may abrogate the development of the disease altogether. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is a huge, huge step forward for the African-American community. Well, and, mm -hmm. and, and the other thing to think about is other FSGS treatments may be very specific for other mechanisms. And instead of just having a hodgepodge of everybody who has the same pathology getting experimented on, we're going to start to be able to parse these. And we're like, we're not going to include APOL1 uh, APOL mediated kidney disease. And we're going to have a more coherent group cohort to test whether it's steroids or other, th or other types of therapies. 
Joel, that's an excellent point. I mean, so like if you knew somebody had a TRPT6 gain of function mutation as their FSGS, would you not treat them with a calcineurin inhibitor? Of course you would, because you know what the underlying pathway is. The problem is there's 25 other pathways that we don't know, but maybe we know two of them now. We're, 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 we're working on this. We're chipping away. Hey, yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is great, uh, Jim. Just the idea that uh, we're still learning about this, and we're at the we're at the bottom of this mountain, and we're going to learn a ton about ApoL1 and its manifestations in lupus and FSGS and in pregnancy and in transplant is super exciting. It's exciting, exciting time to be practicing. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Thank God I'm still practicing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. This is awesome, right? What a great time! What a great time to be a nephrologist. Thanks, both of you. This was great. And uh, send, you know, get your patient genotype with Arcana. This is, uh, this is, this is the time to do this. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Joel. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. presented at ASN last year and we had that one guy who kept on trying to come up and really critique everybody's work and uh, you had a good answer and you shut him down every which way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a pretty nerve-wracking experience is all I will say. It's a very large room with a lot of people but yeah it was uh, interesting and certainly did get a bit of um, did get a bit of pushback. I think I said something along the lines of well, there was a lot in that question or something. <laughs> a speech dressed up as a question. And the guy's name, his first name is, first name is Nate. I don't know, he, he came up for everyone. It's like somebody. Irregularly Irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't the place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than taking the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. I have no relevant COI tonight. Tonight we have Sophia Ambruso. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso, Sophia Kidney, I think. Yeah, at Sophia Kidney on Twitter. I'm a clinician Twitter? educator. Twitter? What is uh, Twitter? With a form, what the formerly Website known formerly as known as Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a clinician educator at the Denver VA in the University of Colorado, and I have no conflicts of interest. We also have Nyan. Hey everyone, my name's Nan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I guess I host, though infrequently, at Captain Chloride, and my only disclosure is that I have never prescribed plasma light. I actually don't even know if we have it at our hospital. Yeah, what is this stuff? Agreed. Yeah, I've never Agreed. prescribed it either, actually. And tonight we're going to be talking about the best fluid trial. 
uh, balanced crystalloid solution versus saline and deceased donor kidney transplantation, best fluids, a pragmatic double-blind randomized controlled trial. And for this, we have former astronaut Michael Collins. Michael Collins, the third astronaut, the one who stayed up in Apollo 11 while they, the Eagle, while, uh, excuse me, not the Eagle, the, the command module when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down to the surface. Michael, thank you for joining us. No, actually, Michael, you are, what are you? Are you an intensivist? I was going to say, Michael looks just... so good. Yeah, look pretty good for, uh, for, <laughs> for the buzz. <laughs> so, so I'm a Kiwi Australian. Um, it's probably the best way of describing it. I come from New Zealand originally, Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is where we're doing this recording. Uh, at our conference, the Australian New Zealand Society of Nephrology. Uh, I'm a nephrologist by training. I trained in New Zealand and then I ended up through a number of different pathways working in Adelaide, Australia. But uh, when I started, when we started the Best Fluids trial, it was from Auckland and New Zealand and working with collaborators across Australia. And now I find myself at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in Australia as a nephrologist, predominantly clinician, do a little bit of teaching and trying to build a research career. Tell us, how did you get to best fluids? Like, have you always been into resuscitation fluids or were you always into transplant? Like, how, how do you find yourself doing this trial? So that's an interesting question. So I am a transplant nephrologist, I guess, by training, and that's my area of interest. And I found that the main aspect of my job is really to provide that perioperative care to kidney transfer recipients, right from when they come to the hospital go into the theatre and post-operatively care and then subsequently in the clinic. And that's really where I found my real area of interest. And I was just curious about why we do the things we do. And I remember being in the intensive care unit, which is where at the Auckland Hospital all the transplant patients are cared for after the operation, and was told, well, we need to give these patients this fluid. And I said, well, why? Why do we give this fluid? And it was never really apparent that we had much evidence for what we were doing necessarily. And then when I was a relatively junior consultant, which is like an attending, I went to this same conference that we're recording this podcast from at the moment and heard a registrar, a Presidente Systematic Review, uh, on which fluids were the best to use in kidney transplantation. And this systematic review was later published as a Cochrane Review uh, in about 2016. And I then went to the ASN Kidney Week and heard a presentation from a single center clinical trial looking at the same question. And I went up to the trialist or the person who was doing that trial, who's one of the authors on Best Fluids, a guy called Peter Mount, and said, that's a really interesting question. We should do a proper trial and address the question well. And then it kind of snowballed from there. I proposed it to the Australasian Kidney Trials Network. I was a junior member of a working group at that time managed to get an, a senior collaborator, Professor Steve Chadband, to support the idea and worked with all the people I knew throughout Australia and New Zealand to get a trial group together, write a protocol and get funding. And we had lots of help along the way, but it was a very long process um, and it's taken a good eight to nine years from when the idea first came to now talking about it to people like you. So the whole question of resuscitation fluids and the identity, to me, it feels like a question from the last decade. Like when we were doing early goal-directed therapy, we were pouring in liters and liters of resuscitation fluid in the first you know, 10, 12 hours when patients come into the hospital. And 
recently the trend has been moving away from that. We have become much more judicious in the way we give IV fluids. And as we have, it's you've seen kind of trial after trial that has brought up this exact same question that you've had, which fluid is going to be best balanced solutions versus normal saline. And what we see is just the, the volume of fluid that are given in these trials is modest. And, and, be, and as a extension of that, we don't see much difference, right? Many of these trials have been negative and you seem to have plucked out a very particular case, which was perfect for answering this question because A, your patients got tons of fluids. B, they all had homogenous kidney disease, right? Many of these trials have taken unselected patients that had very low risk for kidney disease. And you can see it in the end, right? These are 15,000 person trials, 12,000 person trials with either a tiny effect size, I'm thinking about um, salted and smart, where they had a tiny effect size, but they were able to find something, or they found no effect at all. And there was arguments, oh, you got some resuscitation, you got some uh, unselected fluids beforehand. But the nature of transplant, A, large volume of fluid, B, all of them have kidney disease, they're all at high risk, and C, and I think this is important, you were able to get all the consent done in advance so that patients right from the right from part one can get labeled or uh, at least uh, study fluids rather than having a period where they got initial resuscitation with whatever was handy in the uh, ICU before randomization really was a perfect scenario to test this hypothesis. Yeah, it's I think that's right. I think and we're just lucky in that sense. So I'd add to that with a couple of other comments. One would be that. Ischemia reperfusion injury is universal in kidney transplantation. Like you said, the kidney disease is homogeneous. Everybody has some degree of ischemia reperfusion injury causing a degree of acute kidney injury. And the question was always about whether saline was harmful due to the high chloride content rather than are balanced crystalloids necessarily better. And in that context, when you've got a high volume of fluid being given, to a population who are universally susceptible and uh, getting an injury and have a high rate of events as well. So the primary outcome in the trials delay graph function, and that's 30 to 40 to 50% of people after deceased donor kidney transplantation, depending on the setting. So if it's brain death, it's a slightly lower rate. It's much higher with donation after cardiac or circulatory death. So you've got a perfect situation to address that particular hypothesis. But of course, our results don't necessarily generalize to the intensive care setting or other settings, but we think they provide a strong basis to consider that. And why why did you use plasmolate? Is that a common solution in Australia or New Zealand, this area, or why did you pick that over ringers, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. A couple of reasons. One was the single center clinical trial that we did as a pilot for this, which was really work done by others in Austin that I joined late in the process, used plasmolite as its study fluid of choice. Several of the pre-existing trials had been done with plasmolite. Some had been done with lactate ringers. So you could have chosen either. There are some physiological reasons why plasmolite might be better. It's not hypotonic like LR is. And you'll be aware of that LR is associated with an increased risk of death in people who have traumatic brain injury, in part due to cerebral edema. And when you're giving a lot of fluid to people in kidney transplant, maybe it's good to avoid a moderately hypotonic fluid. That was one thing. And then the other thing is that the fluid was quite available to us. So in New Zealand, Australia, I had 
access to people who had links to Baxter, who produce it, and they were prepared to provide the blinded fluids for us um, using those solutions. So it's sort of a number of different factors led us to use that as the intervention. But again, this was less balanced solution is beneficial, more normal saline is harmful. I think that's the underlying hypothesis. I'm not sure which is true of those two statements. We can't say either. But that was always the hypothesis that, you know, saline's got a high amount of chloride. It's actually relatively hyperosmolar. It's, it promotes acidosis. And we've got a fluid that doesn't and that you can give in large volumes and it's reasonably safe. And it's pretty cheap. I know the plasma light's a little bit more expensive than LR and some other fluids, but it's pretty cheap overall, certainly compared to dialysis. I was just looking up the cost comparison, and I don't know if it's different there, but it looks like actually when I I actually used uh, Google AI since that's available now. I don't know if you guys have started using that yet. Oh, fancy. And, it's, and you, just, it's, you need to say this next statement like you pretend you're a robot when you say it. <laughs> I'll pass on that. Um, <laughs> Hard pass on the robot. Okay, okay. Good idea. Probably, uh, but LR and Plasmalite are comparable, like about... I think it, it's about 450 per mil or per liter. And then normal saline is, I think, about $2 per liter. So that's the comparison. $2.50 is four seconds of dialysis. So I don't think it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it varies hugely by country. Some of the intensivists have published a paper on the cost, relative costs of the various um, different IV fluids. And essentially... Depending on where you are, the cost varies hugely. So it's hard to draw the cost distinctions outside individual jurisdictions. But as a rule of thumb, we sort of always say it's about US dollars, $1 per bag of saline in most places. And it's about $2 to $5, depending on the country for plasma light in most places. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that the PLUS trial, the BASICS trial, and the SPLIT trial all used plasma light. Am I right? They did. Uh, and yes. all of them were negative trials. And this was coming off of the SALTED and SMART trials. I know SALTED was not technically a positive trial, but it because it, you, if you use the MAKE outcome, it was positive. Uh, SMART was certainly positive, and both of those were LR. And I know I heard some rumbling that maybe it's an LR versus LR is better than plasmolite. And then here you come in with best fluids using plasmolite and show a greater effect size than anybody's been ever been able to show. I thought time. that SALT, ED, and SMART. I thought those were both LR and they were and both. Or. Those were both LR. Those were both LR. Nope, they included. A majority of LR and some plasmolite, but not very much plasmolite. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you, Sophia, for correcting me. And I would add that Split was just finished at about the time we designed Best Fluids. And so we knew that result. Plus was underway. And probably we were lucky enough to piggyback off the fact that Baxter were producing large amounts of blinded solutions and said, oh, well, if you change the label, you can use it for your trial because we were wanting 800 and and plus wanted 8,000. So they had the manufacturing in, pro in place to do it. So there was kind of like a certain element of good luck and chance there. Baxter is just putting money into this and is like, I hope maybe this is going to be the one. This is our foot in the door and people start using it. They didn't give us a cent. They didn't give us a cent. <laughs> Let's get started on the, um, on the methods. But uh, th this is a great introduction. Nan, what do you got? All right, so... People that have been listening to this podcast, this is another string of pragmatic trials that we've done recently. So again, a pragmatic 
investigator-initiated registry-based trial. So it was double-blinded, randomized. It was done in 16 different centers, so 12 located in Australia, four in New Zealand. It was sponsored by the uh, Australasian Kidney Trials Network. And, you know, as these studies go, an extremely broad inclusion criteria, essentially, if any adult or child coming in failure admitted for a deceased donor kidney transplant was eligible. And there were a few exclusion criteria. So participants receiving multi-organ transplants were excluded. A child weighing less than 20 kilograms, or if the treating clinician deemed the participant too small for a blinded fluid study, living donor kidney transplants, and then all the patients that are allergic to salt water were also excluded. Michael, Is that a, a joke? Problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> it was in here. It said allergic to saline. Is yeah, this, yeah. Is I this think for the, real? I think that <laughs> the terminology is hypersensitivity to the trial fluids or packaging. That's one of those weird things that relates to the fact that on the product information for plasma light, down in the very, very tiny small print, it says reactions to this infusion have been noted. And so very early on, that crept into our exclusion criteria. I actually don't think it exists. Joel can share the case reports of the. I got no case reports, but I do want to hear. I want to hear, like, you guys made children eligible, which is so, at least in most trials, we just see the blanket exclusion of kids just because of the concern about enrolling them in clinical trials and, and consent, et cetera. How, why did you make that decision to go to open it up to kids? That was very cool, by the way. So it was an in principle stance taken by the trials network, which is that unless there's a good reason to exclude on scientific or safety grounds uh, children from clinical trials, we shouldn't be excluding them. And clearly, deceased donor kidney transplantation and fluid therapy are administered and given to uh, children, and therefore, it was important to at least attempt to generate some evidence around that. It has to be said, of course, the portion of the population in our trial who are children is very, very low. Well, reflecting why, the why, low... why was that? Why, why did you have so few kids? So I was curious. That, that was surprised that such a small percentage were kids. Yeah, it's it's only slightly lower than the total number of kids receiving a deceased donor kidney transplant across the two countries. We published a paper comparing the baseline characteristics of our population with the same with the entire transplant population in Australia and New Zealand over the same time period as a trial. And it's slightly lower um, number of kids, but it's still a relatively small proportion that get deceased donor transplants anyway. And was the decision to exclude living donors just because of the lower rates of DGF or what was the idea behind that? Yeah, quite a different question. So delay graph function only occurs 5% approximately in live donor transplants. And really the, the key population at risk was deceased donor transplants. I also think that might what might have been what would have happened if we'd set up the trial as a live donor trial is it would be overwhelmed by numbers from live donor transplants because they're easier to approach for research. Uh, and we weren't setting out to recruit that group. Uh, and indeed... So they were deliberately excluded early on. They're really not the group at risk for the research question. So then participants were subsequently randomized one-to-one to to either balanced crystalloid solution, which in this case was plasmolite, or normal saline, and they used an adaptive minimization algorithm. And the factors associated with that algorithm were which transplant center and the type of deceased donor, uh, so whether it was a DCD or DVD donor. They also factored in the, the kidney donor risk index, or KDRI, not to be confused with the KDPI, and then whether it was machine perfused or not, which I think was very low 
numbers actually. And then trial fluids, as Michael mentioned, were produced by Baxter and supplied in. And what what is adaptive minimization? Is that what what is that for someone who doesn't do clinical trials and just reads them about them on, on Sundays? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm told that state-of-the-art sort of method of... Um, I'm told, oh, that's the best. Yes, perfect. <laughs> no, so I, I do understand it. Basically, what you do uh, with that is you want to try and ensure balance um, across the groups for the factors that you're interested in minimizing. And it means that every time a patient is randomized, the algorithm looks back at the balance of factors across the two groups and then makes a decision about where to put the participant. There isn't a pre-listed randomization sequence or, or randomization within individual stratas of different subgroups, which is how stratification works. Um, so it's sort of when you've got a situation where you might have quite small strata, Mm -hmm. um, you might end up with very low numbers in individual strata if you have too many, whereas minimization looks at the overall population you've already randomized and says, where's the balance, uh, and then takes that into account in terms of where it randomizes the next participant. But the, this is all done by a computer, and the yep. uh, trialists have no clue. None whatsoever. And no. this is double-blind, and it's double-blind all the way through. Nobody has any idea. Yeah, so the randomization for us was outsourced to um, what's called, uh, what well, the name of the place was the uh, National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia Clinical Trial Centre. They provide this system sort of on a commercial payment basis. And we basically linked direct from the registry, which was the user interface that people were enrolling participants into via a backend into their system, which did the randomization and then spat back the study kit allocation to the registry and then the and then to the user um, looking at it on a screen. So there wasn't even a direct connection accessible to uh, any of the blinded data. We, we couldn't access it even if we wanted to. It was all locked up in the clinical trial center system. Okay. Great. So post-randomization, participants were assigned to either the balanced crystalloid or plasmolite and normal saline, and they received that study fluid for all maintenance, replacement, and resuscitation purposes during the surgery and post-transplant up to 48 hours, or cessation of IV fluids as deemed necessary by the, by the treating clinician. All decisions regarding amount of fluid, duration of fluids was at the discretion of the physician. Is that right? Yes. I think most people are familiar with saline. I had to look up the composition of plasmolite, because again, I've never used it before. It has a osmolarity of 294, 140 millimoles per liter of sodium, 98 of chloride, 5 millimoles per liter of potassium. It's an acetate buffer. And my understanding is that plasmolite can vary in terms of pH, but in this case, it was all a pH of 7.4. Hmm. Yes, it's usually around 7.4. Then the primary outcome in this case, and I'm curious, Michael, to hear your thoughts, was delayed graft function. And the definition of that here was receiving dialysis within the first seven days post-transplant. And it was a binary variable here, just yes or no. And that's different than the initial protocol that you guys proposed. Yeah, I want to hear yes. about this. Yes. So when we first designed the trial, we were trying to achieve a lot of different things embedding the trial in a registry, setting it up as a pragmatic trial. And at that stage, we didn't really know what our recruitment rate 
was going to be. And so we designed the primary outcome to have some continuous elements to it and designed it as a ranked outcome so that we would have greater power to show potential difference across the primary outcome. So the primary outcome was a composite. It included a ranking of the longest dialysis through to no dialysis at all, and then a measure of how fast your creatinine fell from day one to day two, which is a measure of graph function recovery called the creatinine reduction ratio. And it would have been calculated for every single participant. That was what we set up initially. That was approved by ethics committees. The original protocol was approved that way. And we got our initial funding on the basis of um, running the trial with that protocol. But increasingly, as we consulted with grant funders in Australia, with peer reviewers and with additional external statistical advice, concerns were raised about whether that outcome would be difficult to interpret and in particular whether the components hey, Michael, of the outcome... I'm sorry. I'm used to peer reviewers only getting involved after you have a publication and a manuscript. What kind of peer reviewers are, are talking about this or this early on? What is this? Well, the grant funding process. So when you seek grant funding, you um, expose your protocol to peer review at that gotcha. stage. Okay. And we had some funding on the basis of the original primary outcome, but we also had other, other grant review processes because it's done in two countries to try and obtain the grant funding. And it was raised as a concern. And so we looked at it critically and said, is this the right outcome to stick with? And primarily because it could be difficult to interpret and because the components of the outcome might go in different directions and may create a difficulty in terms of interpreting the results. We looked at whether we could resize the trial to use the binary outcome, which was one we all felt a lot more comfortable using. We just hadn't had the confidence at the beginning to say that we would recruit the right number of people to get the sample. By that time, although we didn't look at the unblinded data, we the data was remained blinded throughout, we did a pre-planned analysis after the first 100 patients to say, well, what's the rate of delay graph function? And we found it was sitting at 36%, which was higher than we'd anticipated. And we thought, well, what power do we need? What sample do we need to get a 10% separation around that? Because that's what we thought was clinically meaningful. And, and so we looked at that and basically we were told you need to increase the numbers from the 574 up to 800. And looking at our recruitment across the whole trial at that time, we recognized that we were able to do that. We were recruiting a lot faster than we'd anticipated, and we had more sites coming online. And in fact, even with the higher sample size, we finished the trial six months early. So we made the decision in a trial steering committee meeting and then sought ethics approval to change the primary outcome. That's, ama that's amazing. That's, a that's amazing. You don't oftentimes hear trials go to a more rigorous outcome. They usually <laughs> go backwards rather than forwards just because of poor enrollment. But I guess everything was falling your way. Higher outcome than you expected, easier enrollment than expected. Like these are just things that you don't usually hear from trialists. So I wasn't a trialist when I started this work. And the outcome that we had designed at the beginning had some attractive aspects, composite, everyone was going to get a value in it, all the rest of it. But I always found it hard to explain to people. And I think as a clinician, because that's what I am primarily, as a clinician, I was always left with the feeling, can we do better here? Can, can we actually use an outcome that people understand more? And so we were really delighted when we realized that we can change it. 
Now, some people criticize trials when they change outcomes midstream. We did it in a completely blinded way. We did not know. We did not know anything about what was going on in the trial except for the event rate and the recruitment rate. And we had put in some pre-specified, we're going to have a look at how things are going after the first 100 patients or so, but we hadn't intended to change it. We went and did it. It was from a scientific background, and and I think in the end, it's proved to be the right decision. For somebody who's not a transplant nephrologist, is this definition of DGF standard? For some reason, I thought that at our center, and I'm I'm probably wrong, is that if you dialyze once for hyperkalemia post-transplant, it was not considered DGF necessarily. The definition of DGF based around one or more sessions of dialysis is the one recognized by the FDA and is the most common in the literature. There are a variety of different proposals out there for various different definitions. And there's a little bit of controversy around this, but it's pretty simple. In fact, people always say the one dialysis for hyperkalemia happens a lot more frequently than it really does. When you look at our trial, and you'll get to results, and I don't want to talk about that too much, but the numbers of single dialysis sessions in the, in the delay graph function group is pretty small. So yes, it, it, there is that. Uh, and you could break it down different ways if you wanted to. But in reality, DGF defined as one or more dialysis. That's pretty standard, pretty agreed in transplant around the world. Have there been a number of transplant trials that have looked at delayed graft function specifically? Is this a, an outcome that's been done in, a, in, a, in other transplant trials? Yes. Some of them haven't published. Um, there have been a variety of um, <laughs> biologic agents that have been trialed for DGF, which are not published. They're on clinicaltrials.gov if you look that up. And there are other trials using this outcome. And as I say, we use the FDA guidance, which was updated or in draft form around the time our trial outcome was being considered. And then it's been published as definitive guidance subsequently to use D- DGF, mostly based on dialysis. So yeah, it's a standard outcome. Okay. Secondary outcomes, none? Yep. So there's a whole host of secondary outcomes here. One of the main secondary outcomes was the initial primary outcome before the amended protocol. There was also things like post-transplant hyperkalemia, treatment required for hyperkalemia, peak potassium, fluid overload, which was defined as greater than 5%, weight gain, I believe by day two. There was urine output, use of inotropes or vasopressors during or post-transplant, acute rejection, number of transplant biopsies, mortality, graft survival, duration of hospitalization. So again, a whole list of secondary well, everything. That, everything. And if I was doing this again... I probably wouldn't collect so many secondary outcomes. As when you do a trial, the more outcomes you collect, the harder it is to do your trial. More data you collect, you know, you want more, people want more, but but the reality is doing a pragmatic trial, it's better to be simple and keep stick to your knitting and do the key things that you really want. Any other thoughts on the methods? Sophia, you got any game here? No game. I'm lacking game. Did you want to talk about the way we analyze the outcome? Oh, yes, please. definitely. Yeah. We did a, we tried to generate a, well, we generated a relative risk of the binary outcome. So we had to use a model that incorporated the factors that we took into account at randomization. And that was the KDRI. It was the center. It was whether or not machine perfusion was used and it was whether or not DCD or DVD was used. But we also knew that ischemic time would have a very big impact on the rate of delay graph function and ischemic time was not something we could take into account at randomization because you don't know what it is at the time the patient's being admitted but we did incorporate it into the model and so those things were taken into account so this is one of those 
outcomes, which has been adjusted using a, uh, sorry, has been analyzed using a adjusted outcome, which I think having listened to previous iterations of the podcast, you've discussed quite a lot in the past yep. why that's done and how that's become standard in statistics. And you guys were pretty spot on. You wanted to show an absolute difference of 10%. 10%, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how does that happen? But that's results. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. That's It was pretty straightforward, I think. So that, that... Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Anytime that the methods are straightforward, it, it, it's, a good, it's a good sign that we're going to be able to understand the trial. Okay, Sophia, hit us with some results. Okay, so basically 404 patients in each group received a transplant, 395 in the balanced crystalloid and 394 in the saline group completed the trial. This was, of course, in, uh, an intention-to-treat analysis. The characteristics were reasonably balanced and reasonably representative of, of the Australian population. Interestingly, though, a greater proportion had a primary cause of their kidney failure of, of GN, that's 39%. Only 20% had type 2 diabetes, so it was a pretty healthy population. And in the first 48 hours post-transplant, the balanced crystalloid group received a greater mean volume of trial fluid than the saline group, and that was 8,143 versus 7,180. I'm not too sure if there's anything to discuss about that. It seems like it's probably just chance. There is a reason for the difference. Well, there we go. That's your that's your cue. The difference <laughs> amount of fluid that was given. Yes. I mean, that's yes. decreased rates of DGF, right? People are peeing more, and people are given more fluid. Yeah. And are you sure uh, that's it, or is it the opposite? They got more fluid, uh -huh. so they peed more. So it's blinded. When you look at the, um, it's in the supplement somewhere, but when you look at the volumes of fluid given intraoperatively versus post-op peripherally, all the difference in fluid is post-op, and it reflects, we think, the clinical practice of chasing the urine volume. Hmm. So most people who come out of theatre, you get prescribed urine output plus 30 or urine output mil for mil or two-thirds hmm. urine output, whatever, and, and therefore the prescription follows the urine output. Gotcha. Okay. That's amazing that you're seeing it happen in the, the in the theater. We don't say theater, but that I mean I I don't know how to better put that, but literally they're peeing more yes. because they are getting plasmolite instead of saline, and so they're not having that theoretical ischemic mechanism, right? And so they're peeing more, and they're trying to keep up with it, so they receive more volume. Yes. And I think if we weren't a blinded trial, then this might be a criticism of the study because they would say, oh, clinicians gave more of the intervention, then therefore that's the reason, and they knew what it was. This was blinded. People didn't know what they were getting. Hmm. It's still an incredible amount of fluid. And that's yeah. the key here. Yep. Absolutely. It's a bananas amount of fluid. I mean, this is at least, what, more than double, triple what they gave in the other balanced crystalloid versus saline trials it is it double triple that that's exactly right yeah i mean you know i i let it slide that you're blaming chloride for all this but <laughs> i've been wondering when that was gonna come <laughs> you know chlor yeah you've heard too much of a good thing right so chloride's like what scotch and cheesecake it's good until it's not yeah okay all right roll it sophie okay so just to, to add, there were non-trial fluids that were given, 63% in each arm. Open-label saline was given to 186 of the balanced chrysalid group, and that was 484 mils and 45% in the saline group at 646 
Mills. I'm a, I mean, do you know why that ended up happening? How they got? I think, it was, I think they said it was medications. Uh, medications, medications. That's what I thought. Yeah, some trials stipulated that you needed to use the assigned fluid for everything, and there are sometimes medication compatibility issues. We didn't attempt to crack that nut with this study because, as you can see, the volumes relative to the total volume of study fluid was still pretty low. Mm-hmm. So it's basically people got a bit of saline probably for medications and a bit of dextrose for the same reason. Okay, so blood product use was similar in both groups. And then as expected, the balanced chrysalide group had a lower mean serum chloride and sodium concentrations and a high mean serum bicarbonate concentration and blood pH in the first two days post-transplant. The mean serum concentrations of potassium, urea, and hemoglobin did not differ between the groups which I was pleased to see. I can't tell you how many times I get asked the question, should we be giving LR or any of these balanced crystalloids to patients who have advanced CKD or delayed graft function or just hyperkalemia? And in the grand scheme of things, what is it? Five millimoles concentration per yep. liter? I mean, that's that's a drop in the bucket for our total body potassium. There was a previous trial that actually showed lower potassium with balanced solution in the post-transplant period. And so it was interesting that this that signal did not come through in this kind of definitive study, that there was just no difference in potassium. Yes, and that's interesting in itself. And some of it, you might say, is due to the big difference in dialysis. But even when you look at the indications for dialysis, the number of patients with hyperkalemia being the indication the clinician told us was the reason they did the dialysis wasn't that high or wasn't that different between the two groups. So it didn't seem to be a signal at all. But I'm with Sophie on this. I'm now using this trial to say to people, stop worrying about the potassium and the balanced fluid. It does not matter. Yeah. One would think, you know, we give 40, 50, 60 mil equivalents all the time to correct the potassium a very small amount because the majority of us is intracellularly. So it it makes sense that it shouldn't really make much of a difference. This is actually, you know, eight liters times five is 40 40 milliqual. And so it's one bowl of potassium over two days that we're talking about. Yeah. It's interesting. You guys okay. are looking at, uh, what is this, table table one? You guys use a lot of basiliximab, which is very different than, uh, I feel like, is there just, there's just no horses or rabbits in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we looked at how we differ in this population between the Australian New Zealand transplant population and, and the U.S. population using an SRTR database as part of our sort of generalizability assessment. And that is one of the differences. So there's a lot more use of lymphocyte depletion as induction in the US and in the UK. And in this part of the world and in other parts of the world, there's a lot more use of IL-2 receptor antagonists as induction. And that just reflects the local practice there. There's a bit of controversy about whether lymphocyte depletion has impacts on DGF, but there's not really good randomized controlled data to support any one approach over others with that one. And you commented earlier about the rate of diabetes. In the table, that was diabetes as cause of kidney failure, and that is probably a little bit lower than some overseas populations. But there's still a fairly high rate of diabetes in the overall population of about just under 30% across the whole group. So that's that varies a little bit between countries as well. All right. I think the last thing was that the mean serum creatinine concentrations measured up to day seven were similar in both groups. 
So which finally brings us to our primary outcome of delayed graft function. And in the balanced crystalloid group, it was 30%, which was compared to 40% in the saline group. And the results were similar in the pre-specified sensitivity and subgroup analyses favoring balanced crystalloid. And a greater effect was seen in those receiving a kidney after circulatory death compared to brain death, which I think also would make sense. The most frequent indications for dialysis were volume, uremia, and hyperkalemia. And I can't, I, I can't remember which one was it volume that was the greatest, that was the greatest proportion because I couldn't. Yeah, it was volume and uremia were the two, volume slightly ahead. And the biggest difference, although we didn't measure it statistically, seemed to be in the indications of uremia and volume between the groups. The others didn't really differ. Hey, can you help me out on table two under post hoc analysis? There's a label saying dialysis intention to treat. Yeah. So we realized that we probably made an error when we designed the, the analysis of dialysis as a secondary outcome. So we were interested in the question is, is there a difference in the number of dialysis sessions between the two groups? But when we wrote our statistical analysis plan, we limited the number of dialysis sessions analysis and the duration up to um, week 12 to people who had delay graph function. And so what that meant was we compared a group on dialysis with a group on dialysis and didn't take into account the fact that there was quite a big difference in the number of people on dialysis between the two groups. So we added that post hoc analysis to demonstrate that when you look at it as a whole of trial intention to treat, there's quite a big difference in the number of sessions and duration of dialysis because a whole lot of people had zeros. But we hadn't pre-specified that. And per you know international practice and the practice of the Lancet, we clearly had to label that as post hoc. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, and that's exactly what I was going to come up to and I was going to ask you about. Um, and sorry, I that... do it. sorry to step on you, Sophia. Oh, that's okay. Okay, so that does bring us to the post hoc, and I was hoping that Swap was going to be here because I figured he might give this a hard time, but I think you gave it a good explanation. In the post hoc analysis, the intention to treat, there were differences in both number of dialysis sessions and duration of dialysis in favor of the balanced crystalloid group. This was not observed with the pre-specified analyses. And I conclude from that, when you get delay graph function, you get delay graph function, and you know, the idea, one of the criticisms that was leveled at us initially was, oh, well, it's just all the one dialysis that you're avoiding. But actually, the total duration of treatment, total numbers of treatment, if you got delay growth function, was identical in, this, in across two, the two groups. And therefore, it's not any less mild or more mild form of DGF that you're getting by using a fluid type. When you avoid it, you avoid it. The length of stay is interesting. It's the same between the groups, despite the huge difference in DGF. Is there just a really good system at these centers for dialyzing these folks in the either back at their centers or in the hospital when they have delayed graft function? So we really were a little surprised by this finding initially. And so we've thought about that a bit. And it's the subject of some further work that we'll have to do because it's qualitative. But essentially, I think the clinical practice across Australia and New Zealand has become delay graph function or not, you're going to get discharged when you're medically stable. And most hospitals in Australia and New Zealand can manage the patients having a transplant at their transplant hospital for that period when the kidney's still recovering. And most of us see people in clinic every day or every second day after a transplant. So if they're medically able to be out of hospital, they're used to having dialysis, it's not such a big deal to discharge them. And I think there's a move in that direction in lots of countries, including the United States and, and other places overseas. 
So the so secondary outcomes, the composite outcome of duration of delayed, delayed graph function and creatinine reduction ratio on day two, there was no difference. And this was the original primary outcome. Is that correct? Yep. <laughs> if you hadn't switched gears, you have a negative trial in your hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, we would. And Jesus. I thought a lot about that. <laughs> That's bananas. Yes, it really is. And we're not really sure entirely why. But it's because when you move people off delay graph function into having a creatinine, you probably make that, that group sicker relative in terms of the creatinine amount of fall that they're having. Although we don't know this, we haven't, this is sort of speculative. And so although when you look at the graph that I've put in in figure S2, which tries to dissect all this in the supplement, it's, there's a signal towards benefit, but I think it gets muddy because of the fact that you move people off one outcome onto another outcome by stopping them getting dialysis and their creatinine trajectory becomes clouded. And the impact of that clinically is not that relevant, if you think about it. Who cares whether their creatinine is flat or whether it goes down by a little bit or whether it goes down by a lot? Probably if it goes down by a lot, that's better. But if it's the other two, it probably doesn't matter too much. And we diluted our impact with that outcome. And the statisticians who told us don't use this outcome during the process earlier in the trial were right. So interesting. You were too clever by half. <laughs> <laughs> Just good luck, I think. <laughs> good luck, yeah. Wow, excellent. All right, all of the other secondary outcomes that you wish that you hadn't necessarily <laughs> selected, those <laughs> there was also no difference between There was no groups. difference across the board, right? <laughs> Lots of work. It was a lot of work for all negative, all negative findings. That seemed kind of bananas to have such a powerful primary outcome, which seems so important that I expected potassium to be different, the length of stay, mortality, all these other things that you might have been looking at. I thought they, they would, it would trickle down to these other things and that nothing. Urine output was different. Urine output. So urine output was different, consistent with what was going on in terms of the primary outcome. Um, some of the other stuff got close to being significant, but the trial wasn't designed to address those questions. Some of them, the outcomes are too rare to show difference. So graph failure and a death, it doesn't occur in anywhere near enough people to have power to show an effect. And we'll look at the data long term, like down the track. That is very interesting because we have attributed all kinds of negative outcomes to this delayed graph function. And it always was curious to me, it was like, well, is it really the delayed graph function or is it, are they worse kidneys? They have longer cold ischemia time, all these other factors. And you have found a way to neutralize those and actually have a random group that either had delayed graph function or not. Yeah. And I think we'll be able to have a look at that and, and tease that question out. And it was certainly one of the questions we got from reviewers was, well, does it really matter if you didn't change long-term graft failure or mortality? And we, of course, pushed back and said, well, actually, whether or not you dialyze someone in the hospital is expensive, uncomfortable, and increases costs, and people don't like having it, and it makes it more complicated in terms of the recovery. So yes, it matters. But you know, this trial wasn't designed to answer the question of what would happen way down the track. I must admit that I was a little surprised there was no difference in graft function at a year, but we'll look at the data longer term and see whether that starts to come out. It's all flat though, if you look at the curves. How is it possible that there was such a huge difference in the number of patients dialyzed with an indication for fluid overload, but then no difference in fluid overload between the groups? <laughs> well, the, the fluid overload outcome is after the fact. So dialysis is occurring, and that, that's the issue that happens. That's one of the reasons there's no difference in creatinine. So dialysis is managing the fluid overload. 
dialysis is managing the fluid overload, dialysis is bringing down the creatinine. So hence, <laughs> even though you've got more delay graph function, you don't have a difference in creatinine. And that's one of the problems with delay graph function trials. The intervention you use to measure as an outcome has an impact on other outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a meme for that somewhere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. One. Sophia, are we done here? Is there anything else that you yeah, want to talk about? Yeah, I think about? the the main thing is there were no serious adverse events that were different between the groups. Oh, the last one. There were fewer participants admitted to the ICU for ventilatory support in the balanced chrysalid group. Yeah. And we wonder whether that's a fluid thing. We captured that data using ICD-10 and the discharge codes and also procedure codes in the discharge summaries. So we don't really know the reasons why those people got admitted to ICU, but we wonder whether that's a fluid thing. Hmm. Salem's okay. bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know for the longest time when this was being teased out, I, people would ask me, should I give LR? Or, Cause that's what we have available or normal saline. I'd be like, Oh, I don't care. But for a good five years now, I've been very strong advocate for LR only. Interesting. Yeah, but clinically, this is a very specific population. In most parts of clinical medicine, you're not giving people eight liters of fluid in two days. I don't think. I hope not. Is your argument what you're saying, Nan, is that, you know, the majority of the population's getting a liter here or there, and are we going to be doing harm if we're if we're giving saline in that scenario or I don't think it matters whether you give saline or, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think it matters if you give saline or balanced crystalloids outside of these situations where you're giving liters and liters and liters of fluid. I guess I agree with you, but I think sometimes when you start the fluids, you don't know where it's going to end, right? Like that's something that it's easy to recognize afterwards. And yeah, you're probably not going to give eight liters, but I don't need a 10% difference, right? You know, if it's a 5% difference... Maybe you only need two or three liters for that. And so I'm with Sophie on this one. I've been thought enough of the data. You know, I thought there was a small, but in some cases, measurable effect. And I, I went with uh, balanced solutions. The difficulty in part relates to the study design of some of the large trials. And that's the question you raised or the issue you raised at the beginning that patients enrolled in the ICU trials, particularly the individual randomized ones, were all enrolled when they turned up in the ICU with the exception of SMART and SALT-ED where they enrolled when they hit the door. And they get open label fluids before randomization, which dilutes the effect. And then you only have a small modest amount of fluid volume given. There are a couple of meta-analyses published now, one in NEDGEM evidence and one that I think is going through the rounds of review, looking at this in more detail, which suggests that there is some reasonable evidence towards a potential mortality benefit with using balanced solutions versus saline, and it's Bayesian, so it's based around a, a probability threshold. There's a 99% probability that you get a reduction in death with a small chance of crossing one. You have to look at those, but there's a published paper by Naomi Hammond in NEDGEM evidence beginning of last year on it. Now, I'm not an, an expert in this, but I feel like there's more supportive data for balanced crystalloid in the pediatric population. And I, I know that there's Sarah Fobel has done a lot of work with some of the pediatric intensivists and nephrologists here, and I don't know the data at all, but... I feel like that's maybe a solution that's more pushed in the pediatric population. Interesting. 
I watched this space, the Pluto trial, which was done in the UK in pediatric kidney transplantation, would be expected to report sometime soon. Same question that you guys answered? It was plasmolite versus standard care, which is mainly saline or half normal saline. Interesting. Okay. We'll do balanced crystalloid t-shirts then. I'll, uh, I'll get outvoted on this. Yeah, I think the balanced people have a habit this time. What, uh, any other uh, final thoughts on uh, best fluids? So let me ask you this. So you presented that, you had all the data, you presented that last November, November of 2022. You don't get published till, I want to say June of 2023. Was the review process more frustrating or difficult than you thought, or did things kind of move along at the clip that you expected? It was a process which was which took some time, and there was certainly pushback from reviewers. And I think given that this is a trial that was potentially proposing to change practice, reviewers were understandably quite skeptical, and some challenged aspects of the trial, and in particular challenged the fact that we, in our initial report of the trial that we submitted for review, didn't have that post hoc analysis, so they couldn't understand why there was no difference between the groups as far as they could tell in terms of number of dialysis sessions and duration of dialysis, and yet this big difference in the primary outcome. And hence, we put that post hoc analysis around including everybody in those analyses to make it clear that, that the effect. And also, the review process takes a long time. So when we submitted to The Lancet, I think there was a good six months from process of submission through to final publication. And so that table, that post-hoc analysis ended up being a, a kind of a, a demand of the reviewers, made your, made your study better. When we first submitted it, it was one of the major criticisms that, that was leveled at it. And, it. and I think it was an understanding issue because people couldn't rationalize why was there no difference in the number of dialysis treatments when you, there was a big difference in the overall headline binary outcome of DGF alone. And that was because that analysis was just restricted to the people who got dialyzed. And so we had to make it clearer. And that's part of peer review. You improve the quality yeah. of your paper, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we're grateful to the difficult reviewers that we had. We had lots of reviewer twos, I can tell you. And in fact, the fact that there was no difference in the number of dialysis among the people that received dialysis is an important finding, right? That was what you were talking about. It's not that the people that got dialysis because they got normal saline had a very mild form of AKI. It was absolutely indistinguishable from any delayed graph function. Same. Exactly. And so both those findings are important. Yes. And I think that the review process made us more aware about the importance of explaining that distinction. And there were other things that people raised. And you raised earlier about, you know, people, whether this is the right measure of delay graph function. Some people use different measures. And obviously, reviewers may come from a background where they believe another version is the right one to use. So they challenge us on this. But, you know, that's the process of peer review. And sometimes it does take a bit of back and forth before you end up with the optimal paper that everyone's happy with. But hey, ending up in the Lancet for a, a brand new clinical scientist, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't made a mug of the, of the title page yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> uh, excellent. Um, any other final thoughts on uh, best fluids from anybody? You hedged at the beginning, Michael. So is this balanced crystalloids are good or normal saline is bad? What's your opinion? Well, if you follow our hypothesis, it's the chloride that's the problem. and oh, It hurts them when you say that. And therefore, it's the saline that's bad. I don't think we've proved anything other than they're different. 
but our hypothesis was that it's the chloride and therefore it's the saline that's bad. And that makes sense, really, because saline's non-physiologic in a number of different ways, whereas balanced crystalloids are much closer to human plasma in terms of their balances. Do you think it's the ischemia reperfusion injury that makes this population particularly vulnerable to that? Yes. So 100% of kidney transplant patients have ischemia reperfusion injury, and 30 to 40% of them, it's going to be bad enough that they need dialysis for it. So, you know, they're going to be the group that are vulnerable to any harmful effects of saline and hyperchloremic acidosis, which is what we think is the underlying mechanism. We haven't proven it, of course, and we've got some other studies planned. We collected ultrasounds on everybody in this trial, and we'll have a look at the perfusion markers and other things that we've got available to us. But, you know, it's one of those things. We've observed this finding. We can't be sure, but that's what we think is the hypothesis. You had some patients that had uh, primary transplants that were not on dialysis. They have a lower rate of delayed graft function, presumably because they have native kidneys that are not quite dosed yet. Yes. Yeah. We haven't dissected that out of the outcome here, but yes, they, they definitely have a lower rate of delayed graft function. Typically, if they have a problem, they'll have more slow graft function rather than delayed graft function requiring dialysis. I'm going to ask it again. Any other final thoughts on best fluids? Excellent. So final section, tubular secretions. Uh, Niam, what have you been reading, watching, listening yeah, to? So I, I'm five years too late, and I know that most people know of this already, but on the flight over here to New Zealand, I watched Succession on the airplane. And I remember my wife and I trying to watch this a few years ago and both hating every character in the first episode and hating ourselves for <laughs> watching the show. But, you know, when you're trapped in an airplane, I watched the first four episodes of season one. Now I'm hooked. I've heard really good things about it, including the finale. And so more to come after I binge this on the way home. Excellent. Yeah, I I felt the same way about Succession. Same way I felt about Ozark and Breaking Bad. Like, and you get done with it, and, and you're like, man, I feel worse. Uh, but you can't not watch it. <laughs> Did you watch Succession? Yeah. What yeah, every episode. No, I I, I mean, I thought Thumbs I thought up. it was good I job. thought it was very good, but you don't feel good watching it. They all suck. Yeah. You can't they stop watching it though. It's like a train wreck, right? Mm-hmm. Sophia, what have you been reading, watching? Oh, well, everybody knows I don't read. Yeah, I, I actually have been reading more, I but I don't want to talk about the book that I read because I thought it was awful and I couldn't stop reading it. So, And then when I was done, I felt it was bad. Succession, too, so. the graphic nodule. Graphic <laughs> novel. Well, I was going to say no, I, just a philosopher, but... Yeah, well, I've never actually... I actually haven't read that. I've been meaning to someday read it, but... So I am doing this interesting thing. So I hit... I don't know, about a year ago, I started getting these like literally joint pain in multiple joints. And I was thinking I am way too old for this to be happening. You meant way too young, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did I say way too old? Way too old. <laughs> I'm way too old for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the distribution of like osteoarthritis, but like multiple joints. And I, it was starting to scare me. So I started doing this and I'm in the middle of it, this autoimmune protocol diet. And it's like super intense. I can't have milk, alcohol, coffee, grains, eggs, Don't you have legumes. whiskey right now? No, that was that was sparkling water. I do put bitters in it. Sparkling water with <laughs> yes. bitters. Oh <laughs> I know, but it's very little. I'm just shaking a tiny bit about I love bitters. So yeah, so it looked like it, but that was just bitters. Anyways, everybody's like, well, are you feeling better? And actually, my joints are, but I don't think I've taken this 
good of care of my body in a long time. I'm like actually taking care of myself and I'm exercising all the time. So I don't know what it is. I think I'm just taking better care of myself. Anyhow, uh, I have to like have prepared snacks. Otherwise, I don't know what to eat because it's really hard to find food to eat. You're, you're an N equals one trial and you're demonstrating the Hawthorne effect. Now, tell me what the Hawthorne effect is. <laughs> that, that's when you participate in some sort of research and you get better just from participation and not the intervention <laughs> itself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's all right. I kind of feel, I feel good about myself anyway. So I'll, I'll start reintroducing things in, at, at 30 days and we'll see. I, I think I miss my coffee the most. Turns out though, I um like, I thought I was going to really you miss alcohol. You can't drink coffee. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Is I thought I was going to really miss alcohol. This? Is there data? Be, is it, I oh no, the data them. sucks, right? Okay, good. So the other thing is better. I, what else do you need? Yeah. Come on now. I also have Hashimoto's. So I was like, well, maybe, I mean, it's all bad data, right? So, but anyhow, I feel good, but it turns out I'm a ritual person. I like, I don't mind not drinking alcohol. I just get home and I make myself a little tasty beverage that's non-alcoholic and I sip on it and I feel pretty happy. So. I'm a ritual person. Outstanding. <laughs> okay. Okay. So autoimmune diet from Sophia and succession from Nyan. Michael, what do you got? I often listen to the Freely Filtered podcast when I'm driving um, to and from work. And sometimes I do long drives in the country because where I live in Adelaide, I do a clinic about an hour's driveway. But you guys haven't put out a podcast for a while. Um, so I've had lack of content. That's um, on you, so Naya. Thanks for the that's reminder. Nine, that's on you. <laughs> but what I have discovered is Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter. And in fact, I've got a 10-year-old daughter, an 8-year-old son, and a 6-year-old son. And the 10-year-old daughter in particular, shout out to Eliza, um, is obsessed with Harry Potter. And so our dad-daughter ritual is to sit and read Harry Potter to each other. I have the large format, um, you know, illustrated versions of the books. And we're up to book five. But I discovered Stephen Fry reading it, and um, the kids love listening to him as much as they like listening to me. Not quite the same, but but I've rediscovered Harry Potter reading and uh, and Stephen Fry. And I just got to the end of Deathly Hallows a week and a bit ago. And I was like, at that end, when you get to the end of something you've really enjoyed and gone, oh, what do I do now? Because, you know, Quidditch Through the Ages probably isn't my next port of call or whatever the next book is they tell you to read. That's a good tip because my kids are just getting into Harry Potter. So Excellent. So Stephen Fry's reading of of harry potter and he's done all he does all oh, was it 10 books all seven and seven. you know by the time you get to the seventh book it's 36 hours of reading so you're you're covered for quite a while okay okay excellent